Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Us this morning, you and Shannon, uh, reminding us of what I believe the Apostle Peter is going to be reminding us of this morning. And so I encourage you guys to join me in Second Peter chapter one. We just finished up First Peter, had a quick break where Bart uh, preached great last week, uh, expounding upon First Corinthians 13, and um, I pray that not only did we receive that challenge from last week, but we are reproducing that challenge in our hearts and lives, uh, and in the lives of those that we love and know as well. But uh, today we're going to be starting Second Peter, and uh, we thought, well, if we're in First Peter, we wrapped it up. Might as well just uh, keep going where we're at. There's no bad place to find as far as preaching the Word of God uh, and to dive right into Peter's second epistle as he was writing uh, to encourage some saints and then hopefully to encourage us as saints as well this morning. So Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 and 2. And if you have a copy of the notes that's found in your weekly bulletin, I encourage you to take it out. Once again, it's a reminder to us is what we receive uh, from the Word of God that we would apply, that we would not be forgetful hearers, but we would be doers of the Word as James encourages us in James' uh, letter and words of instruction. Uh, and so that we would be doers, and then in being doers, that we would reproduce what we receive. So our goal is to receive truth and then reproduce that truth uh, for God's glory and for our good. So Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 2, and that's all we'll have time for this morning. The Bible says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Father, we ask that you would aid us this morning. Your spirit would grant us comfort and encouragement from your word. Clarity and understanding of what it means divine enablement and empowerment to obey what it says. Confidence and courage that what you said is true. And Lord, an encouragement to remain steadfast in these truths. We're thankful that the word of God has been granted to us and that it's eternal. And Lord, it doesn't change. And Lord, it's can be applied today as readily as it was applied in the first century. It's equally as true today as it was in the first century. And it will be equally as true centuries from now. Because you never change. I pray, Lord, as Peter writes, to specific people, a specific purpose, Lord, we would find ourselves understanding what proper interpretation is that, Lord, then we could derive those principles. And from that, Lord, apply those principles to us in this day and in this time 
that, Lord, that your word would not be perverted or twisted, but be rightly understood. I pray for the saints in this room that, Lord, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. And I pray for those who are not saints yet, that, Lord, eyes may be opened, hearts transformed, minds turned to pay attention to what is being said. And we know that is not in my power to do. Lord, that is sovereign work of your hand. And so we ask that it would be done. I pray there be no boasting or parading of my flesh, as that would not be loving. But Lord, one that would desire to preach faithfully and clearly your text, that you may be on display, and that as you are on display, and we behold your glory, we be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see just our theme, our topic this morning is just going to be an introduction to Second Peter. I was really trying to come up with a much more crafty theme than that. Um, but that's simply all it's going to be this morning is an introduction to these three chapters as we walk through and navigate over the coming uh, weeks and months. Second uh, Peter, uh, what to whom is Peter writing, who the author is, the recipients, and then the purpose in these opening two verses and then. Just to see how this letter letter unfolds. I know that uh, as Pastor Tim and I were looking through uh, breaking down the various aspects of this book and, and preparing to teach, uh, we are extremely excited about the Word of God and it and its potential to transform us to, to uh, the very image of who God is. Uh, not that we would be gods, but we would be being, becoming more holy as the uh, First, leader, or First Peter encouraged us to do so, that we would be holy as he is holy. And so we are extremely encouraged by this book. But just to give you a general overview of what this is about, that's our goal this morning. So let's dive right in and uh, let the notes uh, aid us this morning as we unpack what this, uh, who is writing this letter, to whom this letter is being written, and the purpose, uh, therefore, in, in this letter, just in these opening, opening verses. First, we're going to see the author... The author there in your notes is Simon Peter. So the author of this letter is Simon Peter. Unlike our day, right, we would write to whom it's written, uh, being written to, and then we wait to the very end to sign our name. Uh, In the first century, they would open up a little differently. They would write who is writing, so you'd know the context of who the person is, to whom it's being written, and then the context of the letter. And then typically at the end, there would be a... uh, a uh, closing greeting or a salutation, if you will, at the end of the letter. But here you see Simon Peter. Some translations would have Simeon Peter. And so the author is Simon Peter. I love how he identifies himself in these opening chapters. You will see first there his given name by birth, Simeon. That would be a very common name in the first century, Simeon. Um, uh, harkens back all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but you see Simeon, and then it's not simple him. There would probably be a variety of Simeons uh, in the first century and a variety of Simeons in the Bible even if you were to do a study of that. But still you see uh, Simeon Peter, and you see now you, his given name by birth and then his giving name by Christ, right? You'll see Peter, where Peter is being given that name. 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a picture of his old life and his new life in Christ. And so it's a picture there for us. And it's to be a picture for all saints that whether or not your name was officially changed uh, or not, uh, you see it's a very common theme even in the New Testament from Saul to Paul, uh, even with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that you would have a name prior to coming to faith in Christ. And then uh, you're so transformed by the Spirit of God that resides in you that when people look at you, they don't see that old person, that um, uh, old person that was given uh, that name, they see a whole new person. So the author there is Simeon Peter or Simon Peter. And so what do we know about Simon Peter? How does he identify himself? Well, he won't first be, make it clear that, that Simeon Peter is the one of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he identifies a few things about him. Number one, he identifies that he is a servant. And a servant speaks to Peter's duty and his humility. Simeon Peter, it says, a servant an apostle of Jesus Christ. So first, a servant of Jesus Christ. That servant there in, in the Greek is a word that means a slave. Um, one of the lowliest of uh, positions in that particular culture, that Greek culture of that, of that time. And so it's Simeon Peter, a slave, a bond servant, a servant of Christ. And that speaks first of Peter's duty. That we are, used to be a slave to unrighteousness. We had no choice. We were sinners uh, by nature and, yes, by choice. Our nature desired to sin, and therefore we chose to sin. It wasn't that we, we really didn't want to. We did the things that we desired, and those things that we desired were not those things that honored God. And so that was uh, how we responded, how we behaved. But now the Bible says for those who are coming to faith in Christ, those who have been born again, we are no longer, no longer a slave to unrighteousness, but we are a slave to Christ. We are a slave to righteousness. And so you see that he's a servant, and it speaks to Peter's duty. But then you also see it speaks to Peter's humility. He could have been puffed up that he was one of the twelve. They would argued and debated even when Jesus was alive. Who would be sitting on Jesus' right hand when he comes into his kingdom? Who would be sitting in Jesus' left hand when he comes into his kingdom to be able to rule and reign over all the people because the government was going to be laid upon his shoulders? But that's not the desire of Simon Peter anymore. He had rejected Christ. He knew his, his fallibility. He knew his sinful state. He knew, even I think as he writes this letter, that there's times where he acts by his old given name. Shortly after the crucifixion, you remember what Peter did? He reverted back to the old way of life. Hey, boys, let's go fishing. That's where Jesus found him, was it not? And at the same time, when after Jesus had been crucified, he had denied Christ. Well, he began to do the things that he used to do. Christ was dead. Therefore, I can go back to my old life. I'm going to go back to fishing. And that's exactly why John chapter 21 was written. That on that shore Jesus was, had already caught some fish. Was cooking that fish. And they had been toiling all night. Trying to catch fish. And he calls out from the, sh the shore. Asked them if they would caught anything. They said no we hadn't caught anything. He yells out. Well they tossed the net on the other side of the boat. Now these are professional trained fishermen. It's what they did for their livelihood before they came to Christ. They do it for some reason. And all of a sudden they get a catch that's beyond 
understanding, beyond comprehension. And you know what Peter does? He dives into the water, swims to shore to be able to spend time with his Savior. And that's where then he's challenged by his duty to be reminded of humility. Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times, do you love me? And then gave him a duty, gave him a responsibility that he would tend and care for his sheep, for the sheep that belongs to Christ's fold. And that's exactly why we were reminded last week, or last as we ended up First Peter chapter 5, that I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Tend my sheep, right? Here's your duty. Do it humbly, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, when Christ appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's exactly what Peter intends to do with his first letter and now with his second letter. The author Simon Peter, and he's a servant. Being a servant speaks to Peter's duty and humility. But he's not only a servant, he's not only a bond servant, he's not only a slave of righteousness, a slave of Jesus Christ. The author Simon Peter is also an apostle. He's a servant, but he's also an apostle. Where a servant speaks to Peter's duty and humility, an apostle speaks to Peter's responsibility and authority. He's humble. He has responsibilities, he has duties, but then he has responsibilities because he is an ambassador of Christ. He is an apostle, a sent one. He says, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so with that came responsibility to teach and to share all that Christ had commanded them. For Matthew 28 gives instructions that all of us as disciples would follow. Where Paul would teach... Young Timothy, in his letter, that he would teach able men, that they may be able to teach others also. You see a train of discipleship taking place, right? Paul writing to Timothy, and he's teaching Timothy to teach others, that they may be able to teach able men, that they may be able to teach others also. And so you're seeing four generations there, from Paul to Timothy, Timothy to able men, able men to teaching others also, and then it would just be continue in succession to where it would eventually reach us in the 21st century, where we can take the unadulterated word of God and begin and continue to teach others, to be able to train able men that they may be able to teach others also and again and again and again until Christ returns. And so there was responsibility. But with that responsibility, it came with authority. It came with authority. To be an apostle, there was authority given to them. They had sign gifts and wonders that were done at their hand. They were able to heal disease as Jesus was able to heal disease. They were able to cast out demons as Jesus was able to cast out demons. They were granted the word of God that the spirit of God would then bring to remembrance all that they had learned. That's not simply a command for us today. That's not just an encouragement instruction for us today. I pray that God would bring to remembrance everything that he commanded me. Well, guess what? He hadn't commanded us. We haven't walked with him three years. That was a command specific to the apostles. I'm going away from you. And when I go away from you, the Spirit of God, I'm going to send this paracletos, this comforter, this helper, and he's going to bring to remembrance all that I taught you for three years. And eventually that gets put on paper for us. It gets inspired 
by, by the Holy Spirit for us, that now we can look to the Scriptures and learn from them. We can't claim that promise today. That somehow by osmosis, we don't study the Bible, and God will just supernaturally grant us revelation today. It comes through remembrance of the Scripture, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. To be reminded of what the Scripture actually says. And so our responsibility is to know the Scriptures. That's why we don't attempt to be flashy here. We could entertain you. We could do a variety of things that would draw a greater crowd. It's not that we don't desire people to be born again. It's not that we desire that others to be able to hear the gospel. It's not that we don't desire for others to be able to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. We just know there's nothing in our power humanly to make that happen. I cannot take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I cannot cleanse them myself. I cannot remove the uncleanness and the idols from them. I cannot put the Spirit of God in them. If so, I would begin with my own household. I would begin with my own children. I have no ability to do those things. David Platt speaks of his teaching, preaching professor. He was in New Orleans. They would professor would take them out to a cemetery and he would command these young preacher boys to preach to these dead tombs. To command those dead men and women that are laying in the grave to do things. Of course, I'm sure they felt pretty foolish and David Platt gives that, that um, testimony of feeling really foolish what was the purpose behind the professor's instructions, behind that what appears to be foolish exercise? It's to teach us that human hearts are dead and that we as humans have no ability to raise them from the dead in and of our own strength and above our own persuasiveness and in above our own means of, of charisma in and of our own selves. We cannot make dead men rise. And that's exactly what Ezekiel learned. When God prophesied, told him to prophesy to the dead bones. Before he asked him to prophesy, he, he questioned young Ezekiel. Can these dry bones live? Ezekiel was more wise than I. His response to the Lord was, you know, you know. And the God gave him instruction to preach to prophesy what he was instructed to do. And that's all that we desire as our men ourselves is to simply prophesy, to simply proclaim, to preach God's words because in that comes salvation, in that comes power. And so therein lies Peter's responsibility and his authority. His responsibility, preach the word. His authority comes from preaching the word. As not an apostle... I don't believe there's any apostles alive today, regardless of what people on television and the titles they want to give themselves. There's no apostles today, but the reality is for us, the responsibility is the same for elders, for pastors, for overseers. Our responsibility is to preach the word, and our authority only comes when we do our responsibility, preach the word. And so the author is Simon Peter. He's a servant. He's an apostle. And now let's look at the setting. The setting of this letter speaks to Peter's urgency. The setting 
of this letter speaks to Peter's urgency. Now, this is not going to be found in the first two verses, so I'm going to break my, my uh, outline here just a little bit off, but I want us to be able to see the setting here. Look at, it's still in chapter 1, but verses 12 through 15. It's there in your notes. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you. You want to circle that in your Bible there if you mark your word. And I would encourage you, you might have an electronic device and you can't mark your word, but I encourage you to mark the Bible I know many feel uncomfortable about doing that, but here's what. There's, there's nothing. This is, these are just paid words on a page, and I'm not by any stretch making little of the Bible. But the reality, for, and you see my Bible, it's, I'm preaching it so much the cover's coming apart and it's falling apart here, and it's not the first Bible over the course of time since I've even been here at Cherokee, but the reality is, Here's what I absolutely believe. It's not magical in a sense, the Bible itself from the physical material standpoint that somehow energy and power emanates out of it. The power comes through knowledge, as we'll study in just a moment. And here's what I begin to understand. When I interact with the Bible on a very practical level, when I mark the Bible, the old saying goes from many old pastors, when I mark the Bible, the Bible has an opportunity of marking me. When I really understand what it is, and I can begin to connect things and understand what the author was intending to do. And so as you'll see in just my own writings, I'll highlight things. I'll begin connecting the dots as you begin to see. And I've got things written on here. I'm connecting points to make sure I understand and over time, the more I've marked it, the more I've come to understand what the Bible is teaching and what it's instructing, the more I've interacted with it, the more I know it, the more it's in me. And that's true of us. My children can watch a movie when they're, they're like their dad. They uh, overdo things. I'll, I'll find a song that I like and my wife, I will drive my wife absolutely crazy. If I find something, I have no restraint. I have no discipline. I, I, I'm telling you, if you were to give me a pack of gum, I'll chew the whole pack in like an hour. It's no, I like, I, when I find something I like, I just kill it. And so I'll find a song and I'll play that, put it on repeat, and I'll play it for like four hours. After about the first 30 times, my wife's about to pull her hair out. I don't know how she still looks so nice with hardly any hair, but she she wants to pull her hair out. And I found that this characteristic has been inherited by my children. And they'll find a movie they watch, and they'll watch it incessantly. And then we'll, they'll, stop, they'll get tired of that, but then all of a sudden they've transformed to be into the characters themselves. And apart from no prior negotiating, no prior constructing, no prior conversation, one will start off with some movie quote. And immediately, without knowing, another person will pick up and be another character within the movie. And having four children, we can almost interact every scene known to man. And they'll go into character, and all of a sudden we pretend to be these people. I used to be very critical of musicals until musicals started erupting into my house. And they started going into character immediately as they were to walk through this. Why would I share this long illustration? The more you put something in your mind, the more you interact with it, and the more then you eventually apply it and obey it the more you mimic it or model it. And our children can know sports figures, our children can know movie quotes, our children can know a variety of things because they have been inundated with that knowledge. My question, men and women, 
are we also encouraging our children to mimic and to know the Bible? And so we don't have to mark our Bibles, but in some form or fashion, you need to be interacting. while we try to give you notes, while we give you a reading plan, some form or fashion, you need to be interacting with the text because it's through that knowledge that we are conformed to the very image of God. And so therefore, I intend always going back to verse 12. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, right? So it's not like it's foreign to them. They know them. He's already said to you, I'm trying to remind you now. You know them and are established in truth that you have. That's why many times it can be said of me, it can be said of us. Why, are, why don't we always talk about the gospel? Well, if you first know what the Bible is, you know many of the letters that have been written even here with, with Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, he's writing to saints who have been born again. And what does he immediately remind them in this passage we'll be studying today and even in 1 Peter? He reminds them of what? The gospel. And almost all of the Pauline letters, all the letters written by Paul, he'll start off in the opening half of the book. He'll talk about what? The gospel. And then the remainder, the second half of the book, he talks about the aspects and the relation of the gospel to the remainder of their lives. Almost entirely in every one of the Pauline books, you can begin to Pauline letters, you can begin to see that. Romans has 16 chapters. Romans 1 through 8, the gospel. How it interacts in their lives in the gospel. And then the effects of the gospel, 9 through 16. Again and again and again, you see this in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Over and over and over, these letters have been written to the churches. He'll, he'll spend time walking through the gospel. Was it because they didn't, they weren't Christians? No, they had understood and received the gospel. But it's because it's foundational. And they need to, we need to be reminded. And that's exactly what you see here. Verse 13, I think it right. As long as I'm in this body to stir you up by the way of reminder. Nothing new. I'm not here with new truth. Just simply need to remind you. And then here it is, the urgency. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Remember that John 21 again? I referenced it already, but it's an important chapter to be included in the Gospels. That's where Jesus communicates to Paul or to Peter how he's going to die. He will be led when he's older to a place he doesn't want to go. He'll be led to the cross. Remember, Peter was like, what about John? Oh, how what's going to happen to him? Jesus reminds him. Each man's plan is up to the Lord. Not his to be able to know what others are going to go through, but ultimately where he was going to be headed. And so in verse 14, Peter is writing, since I know that the putting off of my body, this earthly tent, will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ had made clear to him earlier. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That is a faithful shepherd. That's why we're here. Why we want to teach and want to show you where it's at in the Bible and try to give you communication of what it, the text really means and not try to be cute with our outlines, not try to be overly entertaining. We hope it's, it's not extremely boring, but the reality is our, our goal is you need the Word. The Word's what gives you energy. The Word's what gives you 
strength. Their word's what gives you confidence. Word's what gives you courage. Knowing what God has said and what he hasn't said. And so the setting of this letter speaks to Peter's urgency because he knows the putting off of his body will be soon. Well, that's the author. The author is Simon Peter. Now let's look at the recipient. Who's this letter written to? And the recipient is the same as Peter's first letter. He said, well, that's pretty obvious, Pastor. That's why it has the second letter of Peter in my title. Well, the reality is these titles, and we, we don't have those titles. It was, titles were given when the Bible was, was assembled, when it was collected, when it was compiled. So how do we know this from the letter itself? Well, that's a great question. First of all, the first hint was in verse 1, it says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So who are the to those? That's, that's who it's written to, but who are those people? Well, if you look from there to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to tell us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder. There we are here, reminder, yet again. We've already seen it in verses 12 through 15 on more than one occasion. As you would recall these things, I remind you of these things. Oh, by way of reminder, seen at least three times there. And again, here in chapter 3, verse 1, I'm stirring you up. Your sincere mind, by the way, of reminder. Then again in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so and this is now the second letter that has been written to them. The second letter that is being written. So, well then, it, you might have been, well, I wasn't here, Pastor, for our first letter. So who is that? Well, that's where in your notes it was to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. These elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's the second letter. Now, this is the second letter that he's been writing to those who are the beloved. So that's the recipient. So that's the author. That's the recipients. Now, what's, why is he writing? Why is he... Why is he encouraging them? And that's where the remainder of this letter is going to walk through. And we don't have time to unpack everything. Let's just see what he's encouraging them in with verse 1 and 2. What, what is he trying to communicate to them just in these opening verses? And I believe it could be summed up with this statement that's in your notes. He's trying to encourage them in the unity that's in the midst of their lives and their diversity in the faith. The unity in the midst of their diversity in the faith. That's what I love about this faith family and what I pray that God continues to do in this faith family. There would be unity in the midst of a variety of diversity. And I pray that God would only add diversity to our group. If you begin to look at us, and I I, I said this on Wednesday night to our, our classes that was on Wednesday night. But I say it with all sincerity, with truthfulness. And I say it with great Compassion and clarity, knowing that even some of my family may hear this podcast. Here's the reality. 
I'm closer with many of you than of my own family members. I have greater relationship with you than I do many of my own family members. And I don't say that to the shame of my family members, and I don't say that to the shame of my own self, as if like I, I'm, there's, not, there's no desire to want to spend time with family. I say it with just clarity in the fact that many within my family don't love what I love the most and don't cherish what I cherish the most, which is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my passions and my loyalties lie in a certain place. That place is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where my energies, my time, my efforts are, are being directed. Where, my, your, where your heart is or your treasure will be also, Matthew chapter 6. My heart is with Christ, and so therefore my treasures, my time, my talents, my treasures are with Christ. And so the unity that we have here, despite the fact that we come from different backgrounds, we're different ages, we're in different stages of life, we have uh, different uh, cultures that we come from, different locations that, we were, uh, that we've come from, different um, states that we were born in. And yet we can have such unity here. And this is exactly what Peter is trying to stir up in them. The unity in the midst of their diversity in the faith. So the unity in the faith despite the fact that they are diverse in their backgrounds. And he does this in two ways. Number one, Peter encourages them of their position before God. Encourages them in their position before God. Look at verse 1. says, to those, now those were the, who were recipients of now the second letter, those recipients in the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all Gentile churches. Those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you could preach numerous sermons just on this one sentence. I'm not going to. We're going to land the plane, but you could here. Let me just try to summarize it in a couple of points here. Peter encourages them of their position before God. And with that, the first thing I think he wants us to see is the gift of faith unto salvation. The gift of faith unto salvation. It says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. To those who have obtained an equal standing of faith. uh, Obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What does it mean there to those who have obtained? Some translations you may have in your, uh, in your Bible with the, in the, on your lap in front of you may say received a faith of equal standing. And it would appear to be then that was a man-centered way. Well, I received it. It's what I did. Look what I did. I received this. And even though that is an accurate translation, it's not getting at the heart of what's being communicated by that Greek word. And you can say obtained. Well, it's something that I've done too. I've obtained it. It's mine. I did that. And you know, that's accurate. still lacks what's really at the heart of this Greek word. Word there obtained is one that means by divine allotment. By God's divine will. Yes, you've obtained it according to God's will. Yes, you've received it according to God's will. 
be a picture here of those in the first century of casting lots, what they did before the coming of the Holy Spirit when they were trying to make a decision. They would cast lots. If fall on a certain lot, you'd have your decision. Trusting that we don't know what to do, we don't know which direction to go, we're going to trust the Lord, He's sovereign even over these lots, and so we're going to cast lots and God's will will be accomplished. Now they chose the twelfth disciple in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 1. And so here would be a, that type of picture that it's been a, on a divine allotment. It's a gift to us. And this is exactly what the Bible has taught throughout. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it quickly, but make that note. And you can go back and study it on your own. But it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now here becomes the question for all of the theologians, right? Which gift, what is, it, what is this gift that is talking about it? Is it the gift of grace or is it the gift of faith? And the answer, and their accurate answer theologically is yes. What do you mean? You didn't answer our question. It's both. Go back and listen. For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this, this grace through faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so, God granted grace through the faith that he had given. And as a result of that, no man may boast in it. And so, the gift of salvation, the gift of faith unto salvation is exactly what it's communicating. To those who have obtained by lot... By God's will, God's purpose. That's where it just harkens back to what we'd studied in First Peter as he wrote to them. Why did he call them elect exiles? What does it mean to be elect? It means to be chosen. We've studied that in Ephesians. We've studied that in First Peter. We've now studied, seen it again in Second Peter. God's grace through us. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Men and women, we do not want fairness. If you want what is justly fair, we all deserve hell. Every one of us. That's what's fair. We deserve hell. And for any to be spared is the grace of God. And so the gift of faith unto salvation to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And so it's not just that it was obtained by God's will decree. But it's now of equal standing with ours. What does that mean? This gift of faith unto salvation is that this is the same faith. Now, the hours there is it talking about a variety of different translators would or uh, commentators would reference a variety of different things. Some would say that hours there is speaking of the other apostles along with Peter. And he's highlighting that you can have faith like us apostles. that has authority and responsibility. A duty and humility. You can be like us. This is this salvation. It's a gift of, of God to us. And it's the same gift that could be granted to you. Where others would see that ours is speaking of the Jews. This is a promise that had been a blessing. That had been uh, prophesied and foretold centuries past. Prophets and, have been communicated about this coming Messiah. And now it's been opened up to where Gentiles to be able to receive this same gift of faith as well. Regardless, it need not matter. 
The reality of this passage is communicating whether you're an apostle or not, there are no second-rate Christians. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, there are no second-class Christians. To those who have obtained by the grace of God, who have obtained by divine allotment, a faith of equal standing with ours. Men and women, it's the same faith. I think sometimes we'll put Peter, we'll put Paul, a variety of others in the Bible on a pedestal. And that's who they are. But we we forget marvelous passages like this to be able to communicate to us. We have received by God's grace, by this amazing gift of God, a divine allotment of faith. It's a saving faith, and it's the same faith that even the apostles had. Regardless of it was speaking to the Jews or, or the apostles, Peter's included himself in that mix, and, the, and he's communicating to these ordinary saints in a variety of churches uh, that we've already seen. You have the same faith as we have, and it's been given to you by God as a gift. And so Peter encourages them of their position before God. He first says it's the gift of faith unto salvation. And then he begins to communicate to them about the grace through faith that is granted in salvation. First of all, it's a gift that will lead you to saving faith. But then he also begins, begins to unpack what that is. That with that gift comes grace through faith that is granted in salvation. It's there in verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the first talked about the same faith. They had obtained uh, a faith of equal standing with ours. That's saying same faith. Now, this second portion, by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is not just speaking of the same faith, but it's now talking about saving faith. This same faith that saved Peter and Paul and others It's the same faith that you've obtained, and it's a saving faith. And sort of begs the question, then how are we saved? Well, we know it's through the gift of God that we would have that faith. Correct? It's exactly what we've seen before. To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. But what's that faith in? It's not faith in faith, and that's where ecumenicalism is in our day. Whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, a variety of other denominations, a variety of other cults, false religions, it need not matter as long as you're sincere. And all we desire to uphold as truth is sincerity. Well, the reality is that's not truth. I could be sincere about a lot of things and be wrong. I could be sincere that I could jump out of an airplane and flap my wings and fly. And I could be absolutely convinced that's the case. Does it mean I'm right? Does it mean my outcome is going to go well? I'm going to jump out of this airplane and I'm going to fly. Watch me. People would. Right? You shouldn't just watch me. They should warn me that's not a good thing to do. That despite the fact I'm sincere, doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean there's laws that God has established that I'm violating. And when I violate God's laws, there are consequences to those violations. The greatest consequence to violating the law of gravity is that my body will be hurling toward the face of the planet very, very rapidly. And my body was not designed 
for that type of fall, especially from 5,000 feet, 10,000, 15, 30,000 feet, right? Be a mess to clean up afterwards. And so sincerity does not equal absolute truth. And so the grace, the gift of faith was unto salvation, but it's the grace through faith that is granted in salvation. A person can believe in a Jesus. He needs to, he or she needs to believe in the right Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses or even the Jesus of the Muslims. They would all claim to know something about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But it's not one that will save them. Oh, they could say it's the same faith. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, but that's not what the Bible would say. It has to be by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is where grace is granted. That saving faith. And so it's the grace through faith that is granted in salvation. And so God receives us on the basis of grace that is granted through the faith that is given. And that grace is given through faith when we are trusting in the righteousness of Christ and not our own merit. That's why it says here, by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's important. Is Jesus Christ God? Talk to me. Yes, this passage is explicit. Of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's important there that we be able to understand that distinction. So what happens unto salvation? I repent. All that means, fancy, not necessarily even a fancy word, just a common word. It means to turn, to change one's mind, to change one's behavior. Repent. I've turned from myself being Lord over my life, that I'm going to do what I want to do. My eyes have been opened to that reality that I've made a mess of my life. My eyes have been opened and I've sinned against God. My eyes have been opened that I'm going to be held accountable based upon that sin before God. And he's just to punish me and to place me in a place called hell as a result of my violation of his laws, a violation of his character, a violation of his standards. I've rejected him as not only my creator, but my sustainer. My heart is beating. My lungs are breathing as a result of his sustaining power in my life. And I've given him no glory as a result of his kind and good and merciful favor toward me. And when I repent, I'm now turning to him and what he's done on my behalf. What has he done? He lived the life. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, perfect, without a sin nature, to live the life that I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserved, to make payment for those sins, that for all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him, he will take on on the cross our sin, and we will be able to take on from the cross his righteousness. And then when God looks at us, we are forgiven, not on the basis of love only, but we are forgiven because of the basis of God's atoning work for us. And that's important when we're talking to people about the gospel, men and women. As we're on college campuses talking to young people, we'll communicate to them their need for a Savior. We'll talk to them about the laws of God, how they violated the laws of God. God's a good judge. They'll do what good judges do, right? No one stands before a judge today because of the good things they do. 
They stand before a judge because of the bad things they do. And no judge is letting someone off because they've done good things. That's what we want to try to do, just wait and balances, right? Well, I think God will eventually let me in because I've kind of done more good than bad. That doesn't hold up. If I've murdered somebody, broke the speed limit, tried to flee police, reckless driving, I stand before a judge and he says, did you murder somebody? Did you try to flee the police, reckless driving? I did all those things. But judge, let me tell you why you should not throw me in jail. I know I did all those things. But then I'm on every Sunday I'm preaching messages about the goodness of God. On Wednesdays, I'm teaching there as well. Throughout the week, we're having meetings with church members. I'm trying to encourage them. You know what that judge would say? Well, you all the more should know you shouldn't do any of those things. And I don't care if you've done all those things. Here's the things you've done, and here's the things you need to be punished for. And so as a good judge, God must hold us accountable for violating not just one, but all of his standards. And as a result of that, we must be punished. Now here, we'll talk to people and we begin to walk them through that. They'll realize their lostness. And we'll say, if God's going to hold you accountable to that standard, his perfect standard, his morally excellent standard, is given to us through his law. Would you be innocent or guilty? They say, I'm guilty. Based upon that standard, should God let you into heaven or hell? Sometimes through a little bit more talking to them to understand, they'll say, I, I deserve hell. And then I say, we'll ask, does that concern you? Yeah, it concerns me. And the most interesting happens then. You want me to tell you how the Bible says that how you can be forgiven? How that you won't be held accountable for that and your sins can be forgiven and you won't be punished in a place called hell forever? And they'll go, yes, tell us. And I'll start walking him through. God sent his son in the form of Jesus. And it's like at that particular moment, they're like, whoa, whoa, that was a close one. That was a close one there, preacher man. You got me. I hadn't heard it come from that angle before, but that's a good angle. Ah, yeah, but no, no, I'm good. I did that when I was like seven, six, three. I might, it might have been in the womb. I can't remember, but it was, it was way, I mean, I don't remember when it happened, but it, it's happened. I'm, I'm born again. I love, I love Jesus. I'm like, well, you just said before, you, 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 didn't, you didn't know how your sins would be forgiven. Yeah, yeah, but that's because you, before you mentioned Jesus. Now that you mentioned Jesus, I know that game, and, and I know how that works. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm Baptist. Did I tell you that? I'm Baptist. Or, what denomination are you? Are you're ba- oh, you're Baptist too. See, we know this. We got this. I got this figured out. And so then I asked this question. What, why then do you think God would allow you into heaven? And here's what they'll say. Because God has forgiven me. And here's my question. Why has God forgiven you? And on what basis has God forgiven you? You violated this law. We talked about that. Why would God forgive you? And here's what they'll say. Because he loves me. Fine. I'm not discrediting that. Still didn't negate the fact. The judge could be your dad. Right? I think that would be a conflict of interest, but it's for the sake of illustration. What if your judge was your dad and he has to uphold the law and you're guilty? He can love you, but he has to uphold what the law says. So uh, that didn't hold water. And so then I said, so what basis are you forgiven? And here's what many times people wrestle with. They'll say, 
just because he's loving. And I said, that's no basis. If God is loving, he must uphold what is right. That's what a loving person does. Righteousness must be upheld. I love my wife, and because I love my wife, if somebody was brutally attacking my wife when I came home from work any time this week, I would, I would stop that which is evil that's within my power to do. I would punish that which was evil and want it to be punished because, expressly because I love my wife. Expressly because I will love my children. I want them protected. And they'll go, well, just because of Jesus. And, I, and so then I press them, what did Jesus do? Oh, he died on the cross for our sins. And we say it so flippantly. It is because of that is why we can be forgiven. It is God taking our punishment so that we can be freed. He pays our debt so that now we can be free. It'd be no different than in our earthly judicial system. You must pay a million dollar fine. If you can pay your fine, you may go. I can't pay it. Then you must spend, you must pay your debt to society, as it said. It's the same premise, but on a much broader, much more supernatural scale. And so as a result of that, we need the righteousness of God or we will be a separate, eternally separated from God. And it only comes through understanding that Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserved. By that righteousness is how we are saved. And that's why it's a supernatural faith. Yes, it's the same faith and it's a saving faith, but it's only the same and saving faith that others had because it's supernatural. God must grant it to us. And so Peter then encourages them not only about their position before God, but then Peter's going to encourage them to grow in their knowledge of God. And this is why... We spend time trying to walk through these things. You need to know how you're, you're standing before God. I'm before God, not, and I can stand before God. I can enter into boldly into God's presence. I can cast my cares and my anxieties upon him. I can petition him. I can communicate with him because of my position before him. I've been saved. I've been transformed. He's granted me by his divine allotment a faith. That's, yes, the same faith as the apostles. Yes, the same faith as those who were born again Jews, Messianic Jews. But those in the Bible that I read about that God did such amazing works and wonders through. Yes, it's the same faith, but it's a saving faith based upon the finished work of Christ. But men and women, it's not over at that moment. And that's why those I talk to in college campuses, those that we're having conversations with in a variety of different places, are so confused. They believe it's a one and done. Now, I believe when saved, you're always saved. When you're genuinely born again, the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6. And there's a variety of other passages I could quote. That will give us encouragement, give us instruction, give us courage about the finished work of Christ on our behalf. But the reason there's so much confusion in our churches is because well, I've been saved. Now I'm good. And it's just the beginning. That's like coming home with a newborn. Well, they're here. Grow, child. I'll be back. Is that child going to grow on its own? It'll die. It needs help, does it not? And that's 
our coming sermons is what it's going to be able to communicate to us. But it's in this context that Peter launches out with just a snippet of information for us that in your perusing, reading this opening statement, you'll just be like, not a big deal. Grow in the knowledge of God. Yeah, we should probably grow in the word of God. And we absolutely miss it. And Peter's not going to allow us to miss it. He's going to press us here to make sure that we don't miss it. But this is exactly what he's trying to communicate through the remainder of this letter. He wants to continue to stir up, to continue to remind, to continue to bring to our remembrance what the Bible actually says. And this is exactly what he's encouraging us to do. He encourages us to understand our position before God and encourages us to grow in our knowledge of God. And there's two things he wants us to see, and they're just marvelous, marvelous. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of God. How? Number one, he wants us to see the byproducts of sanctification. He wants us to see the byproducts of what it means to be Becoming more holy could be another word for sanctification. Grow in our holiness. Yes, we've been saved. You have a a faith of equal standing with the apostles, a faith of equal standing with other born-again Christians. You're not a second-class Christian. But let me tell you, we all don't grow at the same speed because where divine allotment, this, this, this sovereign work of God unto salvation... It's completely a work of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. But then listen to me. We're about to move in a very practical sense that, yes, it's still the Spirit of God working in us, but man is now extremely responsible in this second portion, that we should grow in our knowledge of God. And this is what we've been talking about before, dependent work. Yes, God's the one who's doing it through us. But it's not let go and let God. I'm just going to sit and God's going to obey for me. We need to grow. And that's why I encourage you to mark your Bibles, to study the word, to bring to remembrance, to stir up in your minds. So what he said here in verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the apostles. God wants us, men and women, to love Him with our minds, too. Making decisions and honoring God and faithfulness isn't about tingling feelings and and sensing things only. Man, I I sense the Holy Spirit. I've got goosebumps all over. Can I tell you? When I'm at a Georgia football game and everybody's cheering and chanting, we just scored a touch and I get those same Holy Ghost goosebumps. Problem is, we call it Holy Ghost goosebumps, and I'm not sure it's goosebumps Holy Ghost at all. Can God receive glory at a football game? Yes, because the Bible says whether you eat or drink, all that you do, you can do for the glory of God. Most mundane of tasks, eating, drinking, uh, God can receive glory. So I think you can give God glory at the football game. But at that particular moment, God wasn't on the forefront of my mind. We've got to be careful. Sometimes we can think we love God and we're doing what God wants us to do and we're, in the, we're actually in the opposite of what God's doing. We're in contradiction to what the Bible actually commends and commands us to do. And we just have to be cautious. And so what does he want them to do as they grow in the knowledge of God? He wants them to see the byproducts. And that's what verse 2 says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As you grow in your holiness, as you grow in your sanctification, as you grow in your knowledge of God, God gives more grace and God gives more peace. Multiplies unto us. As we understand, I have peace with God. Why should I be worried? 
What's the worst that can happen to me? Well, if I get tortured and eventually killed, martyred, guess what? You're at peace with God. Where are you going to spend the rest of your eternity? With God. That should, do we know what that does when we begin to understand that? When we understand we're at peace with God and we're, hell's not our destiny, hell's not our future destination, provides us confidence. When we have confidence and we trust in God, we have peace. It's not just something outside of us. It's trusting in God. And it gets multiplied the more we know of who God is. The more confidence we have, then we know we're not walking in sin. And there's comfort and encouragement knowing that we're not in sin. It's a byproduct of growing in holiness. And grace as well. We we didn't deserve it to begin with. And God continues to grant us other means of knowing grace. As we begin to look back, as we grow in God, we just think, man, look at the variety of ways that God's protected me. You know how many ways I should have died before coming to saving faith in Christ? And we can begin to look back on and even look forward to, if God's been faithful here, He's going to be faithful in the future. If God, even in my pagan state, protected me and, 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 and kept me from dying so that I could be born again, how much more so will He continue to lead me in grace? That's exactly what we studied in First Peter, was it not? So we're walking through those various trials so that the tested genius of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's testing us. But in the midst of that testing that's going to help us to show our tested genius of our faith, what does he promise us in chapter 4, verse 10? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied Grace. There's a various trials you're going through, a multicolored, multifaceted trials that God has ordained for you to go through. But He hasn't ordained you to go through all those trials on your own. He's going to give you a variety of multicolored, multifaceted graces to endure those trials. And He says, You won't know that if you don't get in the Word. How do we know that? How did you and I know that we're going to go through various trials and we shouldn't think it odd when we suffer? Through the Word of God, the knowledge of God. That's the type of God that will put us through these trials, who will discipline us, not because he hates us, not because of karma, what goes around comes around. I'm just getting what I deserve. If I get what I deserve, I go to hell. If you get what you deserve, you go to hell. But he's bringing us through these trials on purpose. And it's the knowledge of that kind of God that would do that because he loves me. And yet, even though there's, he's got a multifaceted amount of trials for us to go through to test our faith, he's the one who's granted us the faith. He's the one who's keeping our faith guarded in the, in the heavenlies, as First Peter, Peter told us. And he's the one who's granted us a variety of graces to make it through, to survive these trials, even when we go through them. That's how grace and peace can be multiplied to you. But here's just a question. Are you going to come up with that on your own? Here's what you're going to come up with. And here's what I come up with on my own. I've tried to be faithful, God. I mean, I've, I've tried to attend church regularly, try to preach your word faithfully, try to love my wife and my children. How could you do this? How could you allow me to suffer like this? That's where man will end up. That we begin to shake our fists at God. And question God as if we're judge and juror, as if we're right and he's the one on trial. His character is being assassinated by us. And grace and peace aren't multiplied at that moment, are they? Are you asking for grace at that moment? No. Unrighteous anger. 
Are you asking for peace at that moment? No, you have no peace in that moment. Then how can you be like Job and say, no, honey, I'm not going to curse God and die, but thanks for the counsel. I'm not going to do that. God is good. And blessed be the Lord who can give and the Lord who can take away. And so the byproducts of sanctification will be more grace, more peace as we grow in our knowledge of God. That's the byproducts of sanctification. Now let's look at the basis for that sanctification, as I've already alluded to. How do we, how do we see the more of the grace of God and understand more of the peace of God? It's in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's in the knowledge of Him. It's studying here in His Word. And here's the key for us. I think sometimes we're such a society that wants new trick, trinkets and new, new stuff. The latest fad, the newest book that comes out. And not just the regular faithfulness here of the Word of God. And if you really want a crowd, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to do a new series. Listen, Tim and I, we, we talk about it. We joke about it. There's pastors in the past who have cleared all the staging, have their band all from one side or up on the platform here, and then they have a big bedroom scene right here with a big king-sized bed planted on here, and we'll do a series on sex. Invite my wife up here to sit on the bed with me, and we'll just have... Have, have talks with our congregation. You think I'm being foolish. You think I'm just being funny. That really did happen. That really does happen. I could give you the name of the pastor right now. Preaching, supposedly, about sex with his wife as they sit on the bed. End tables, lamps on it, rug out front. Now we're just going to have a conversation about sex. I believe you can talk sex to the Bible because the Song of Solomon's in the Bible. And we can do a whole bunch of things to entertain you if you're just looking for novelties. We could write best-selling books if you're just looking for novelties. But Peter wasn't interested in just enticing their worldly desires and flesh. Now, it's about their, their original birth. How do you make your... Your original birth better. Relationship in your life, your wife, your children. Oh, he wants your new life better. Your relationship with Christ. Relationship with God through Christ. So we're not about new truths. And this is exactly what Peter's encouraging them. I've already alluded to them before, but let me just show you again. He wants to remind them of the knowledge they already have. Encourage them to be in the Bible. Once again, you'll see it in verse 12. I intend to remind you of these, these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth. You know them. But repetition, 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 whether it's on the sports field, whether it's in the classroom, this is going to be on the test. We recently, my family and I just went and took a uh, hunting safety course as an entire family. And they would go through all this information, and eventually the, the instructor would say, you really need to know this one. It's going to be on the test. Reminder, reminder, reminder. And this is the instruction that he's reminding us of, of these qualities. You know them and are establishing the truth that you have. But I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. This is exactly what we're going to do. We're not trying to give you new truth. We just want to remind you of the truth that you hopefully already know. 
And if it's new truth to you, it's not because it's new. It's just new to you. It's in the Bible. It's been in the Bible, but it's new to you. And this is what we see again in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them are stirring up you a sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Our goal is to simply stir you up that you would know God and to know the God of the Bible. He is good. He is loving. But He is not like you. He is God. He is holy. He's distinct and different. And we need our minds conform to His, not the other way around. And the only way that happens is that in both of them, I'm stirring you up and stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You know what the Bible does for us? It stirs up our minds that we know how to make godly decisions. And we make godly decisions by knowing what God thinks. And how do we do that? We don't do it by undermining the Bible by attempting to get pagans to believe what they don't want to believe. You're never going to find me undermining the Bible just because pagans don't want to believe about creation. I'm going to teach you what the Bible says, and then we're going to remind you what the Bible says. And in that, that's how the Bible says that we are not, trans, we're not conformed to the image of this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our emotions, our feelings, our desires, no. It's not about emotions, feelings, and desires. It's about your mind. And to bring every thought captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ. By way of introduction, Peter's saying, know who you are. Here's who I am, why I'm writing to you. Know who you are. And if you know who you are, we'll have unity together. You'll know how you've been saved and why you've been saved. Now grow in your salvation. And there lies what the remainder of this book is going to be about. It's going to be false prophets. It's going to be false teachers. You're going to have to learn how to grow in your faith. Add to your faith virtue. And you're going to see this coming up. Where do we learn that information? It's going to be from the Bible. God's great and precious promises. All that's going to be the remainder of our section. But that's where he launches out. And I can tell you for me. It all came in for one, just two verses of Scripture. How absolutely important the Bible is to us. Here's the question. Is it important to you? Is the Bible important to you? Dads in our homes. Kind of blowing the cover now because your, your kids may be in here with you. But if they were to ask your children. What's important to you? you th- when I think of my dad, what's the top three things I think about? And if a love for God and a love for the Bible isn't in the top three, we've got work to do. Listen to me. That's pretty strong. Listen to me. What do you want replaced in the top three? Love for Georgia football? I think my dad loves my, my, my mom. That's good. That's really good. Should be in the top three. But if mom's in the top three and Jesus isn't, there's work to be done in the home. 
And for many of us, myself included, we can get distracted. And this letter is a means to remind us work needs to be done in the home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.